every single time that happens, most of the time the government will say, okay, let's let's figure this out and we want to buy your product. Let's put it on the right type of paper that will be beneficial for you and beneficial for us. But government can create the conditions necessary for businesses to expand and hire more workers. Welcome to Civic Thinker, the podcast for fearless doers, GovTech innovators, and social entrepreneurs striving to reshape our world. I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Together, we'll unravel the mysteries, dismantle the barriers, and equip you with the tools to conquer the odds and achieve success. The answer is clear. For the people to win, politics as usual must lose. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Because it's so hard that if you don't, any rational person would give up. Ask what you can do for your country. Nothing could be more frustrating than having the deal all wrapped up only for it to get stuck in legal. And by legal means we, we send them the contract and of course a couple days later, it's never fast, uh, they kick it back with a bunch of red lines. Now, red lines is that legal term uh, where they mark up your Word doc with all of these changes and edits and whatnot. And from the entrepreneur's perspective, uh, this this is really scary, this, this negotiation. It is kind of a negotiation. Is this going to hold up my deal? You know, I, I've got a willing customer, I got a willing buyer, we got approvals. Like if this negotiation goes on too far, we might lose the deal. You know, the budget might run out or our customer might get impatient and go look for somebody else if we push back too long. So, you know, getting through legal is really important, especially when you put the legal behind it. I always get real nervous about what you can and can't push back on and still get the deal done. Luckily, we've got a, a great guest here, Joyce Tong Ulrich from Fenwick and West. She's been working with the private sector and GovTech and government for a long time. Uh, she's got a lot of thoughts on this topic. And at the end, she's got some great tips for things we can actually put in our contracts to help help get them through faster. Joyce, I'm so happy you're here to talk about this with us. Thanks for having me, Matt. For those that don't know, you've got a very interesting background and in how you got into this world. Would you mind sharing a little bit about how you got into legal and government? So when I first started as a baby attorney, uh, the first case I worked on was a government contract bid protest for the electronic passports that we all now use worldwide. And one of the issues that they had was the different types of standards that different countries would put on the passports. Because the passports had to be read in every single country, they needed to have a standard that everyone could read. And Europe was working on something different than what the U.S. had. The European standards were slightly broader in terms of the frequency they would use and, and information like that. So our client was a European company. And so they had designed the passport to meet European standards. And when they came to the U.S., they one of their arguments was, well, you have to meet the international standards. So we're one of the only companies that have the international standard on this. Your, you know, back pocket test and the punch test that you use on it is really not as applicable as being able to be read by Europe in terms of when you're trying to travel. 
So they were kicked out of the procurement. And primarily, we got them back in because the contracting officer didn't understand what, what she was trying to procure. And so in that particular sense, the difficulty is if the contracting officer is acting on behalf of the government and they're trying to buy a, a certain piece of technology, they're supposed to learn enough about the technology. They don't have to be an expert by any stretch of the imagination, but they should understand what they're, they're looking for and what they are trying to buy. And this contracting officer didn't have any knowledge of any of the tests, of any of the technology, of any of the technical requirements. She outsourced all of that to her underlings. And that came across when we were deposing her, where she, she, she couldn't answer any of our questions. So we got our client back into the, the round of competition, and then they got kicked out again and came back and asked for more help. And I just thought it was really interesting that, you know, you had multiple bites at this apple where you got kicked out originally, we got you back in, you get kicked out again, you could try to go back again and do this all over again. And it, it was just crazy because everything is done by a series of rules and regulations. But unless you know what those rules and regulations are, you have no idea what you can do and the options you have. So that was kind of the the first taste of of what was interesting in government contracts. And, you, and you've been doing this for a long time now. I've been doing so. this for over 20 years. Kind of scary to say that. Um, so I did start when I was a very first year and then I spent 10 years learning my craft at a law firm. And then I went in to work for Microsoft and Facebook before coming to Fenwick. And, you know, I think that gives us, it gives me a different perspective in terms of what companies truly are interested in, because as outside attorneys, you can always give the most perfect, this is the most perfect risk adverse advice in the world. But to a company that needs to balance risk with reward, that risk adverse advice is maybe not the best thing all the time. They're not going to be able to perform. So you've seen all these people and, and lots of companies come through, some big companies. What have you seen? Like what, what happens when an entrepreneur you know, or, or a small business gets some of the legal wrong? I think the biggest, for technology companies, the biggest uh, oopsie that they had is not protecting their intellectual property. And a lot of times they don't understand what the government is asking for. And what ends up happening is in the, the long run, you know, in the short term, it, you don't really see much impact. But in the long run, when it comes to an exit event, when you're thinking about, do I want to sell the company? Do I want to go public? How do we want to exit this venture? If you haven't protected your IP rights, especially vis-a-vis -vis the government at the very inception, then it can bring the valuation of your company down 20, 30 percent. Because when the underwriters come in and they look at that, they'll say, well, the government has rights to all of your technology because they funded your technology in the beginning. And they may not actually exercise that right. They may never exercise that right. The government doesn't like to, to trample on, on the commercial companies that they work with, but just that perception that they could 
will bring the valuation down. So I think a lot of times, small companies, when they're starting, government has a lot of money to give, and there are ways to protect your IP so that you can take that money and run with it and build your company. But a lot of companies don't realize that you have to have specific language in the contracts with the government to be able to protect your IP so that you don't have that exit event down the line where, you know, instead of a really high number, it's 30, 40% off. I mean, probably not to the scale you've seen that, but I mean, we've seen that even with our contracts. The, the default contract that they give you is one where they control the IP. And, and the truth is, most of the time, the government doesn't want to own the IP because they have no way of commercializing the technology. And that's what they essentially want to see is they want commercialization of any technology that they fund. But what they end up getting is a worldwide license to use and authorize other people to use whatever invention or creation you've, you've made. And that wide license where you get no royalty, you have, you, they have the right to sub-license, all of those different things, it really does put a huge dent in your profitability from an IP standpoint. And that's what the underwriters will hang their hat on when they're saying, no, you don't deserve you know, that number, you deserve a lower number. When I think about uh, legal, and maybe this would be good for the audience too, is like when you're selling products or services to government, you know what's what's different about the legal side when you're selling to government as opposed to the private sector or traditional businesses? Well, there are two things. One, the government prints their own money, so they're pretty much a good creditor when they will pay your bills, so you don't really have to chase them for that. That's on the plus side. On the negative side, they're also the ones with the penalties. So they can come in and subpoena you. They can throw you in jail. They can penalize you for everything your company is worth, even more than what your company is worth. And that is a pretty scary prospect because most commercial companies aren't able to throw you in jail. Um, if they have a contractual dispute with you, they might sue you, but there's no you know, loss of life or liberty or anything like that. But with the government, if you do it wrong and it's egregious enough, they can take those actions. And they have in the past with certain extremely bad actors. Well, I mean, when you flip that around from the entrepreneur's side or the business owner's side, I mean, you know, you're taking on a lot more risk at that point. And that's probably why these contracts and, you know, things that you're, you know, legal processes, things you're setting up with the government are so important. But, you know, which kind of leads me back to that other topic you brought up about negotiation. I, uh, this is something I've certainly struggled with as a entrepreneur trying to sell to the government is like, how much negotiation can you do? You know, what, what is negotiable? What isn't? Generally, anything that is related to your IP, where you have pre-existing IP that you're bringing to the table, that's always um, yours. And if the government has standard clauses in there that give them any rights over your pre-existing technology or pre-existing IP, they will negotiate that with you because they understand no government funding has gone into it. You've done it solely on private expense, especially if you've patented it or if you have a product that is commercially sold. They understand that. And sometimes what ends up happening is you have to understand these government employees, they're handling so many contracts and dealing with so many different vendors that a lot of times they don't realize what is in the contract itself. So unless you are the one who brings it up to them and says, hey, 
you know, you gave us a development contract, but we actually have a product that's already in production that's a commercial item product, and we sell it commercially. Do you think we should be getting a commercial contract rather than a development or a research contract? That'll give the contracting officer a, an aha moment where they're like, oh, right, you're a different type of contractor, and we should give you the, the terms that are more favorable because you are a commercial product. And a lot of times that's the type of negotiation that comes across. It's not the negotiation you would have with a with you know a supplier or a vendor over those particular terms. It's more about, hey, government employee, you didn't understand what we're doing here. And I'm just trying to enlighten you so you use the right documentation with us. And every single time that happens, most of the time the government will say, okay, let's let's figure this out and we want to buy your product. Let's put it on the right type of paper that will be beneficial for you and beneficial for us. There are certain things that they're not willing to uh, negotiate on. And those for commercial companies are some are standard business practice that most companies should have. So non-discrimination, um, trying to use small businesses as much as possible. Those types of good socioeconomic, you know, policies that the government is trying to promote with their purse, they're not going to budge on. And so most companies should just know that that's going to be table stakes of getting in with the uh, with the government. Any other thoughts about things entrepreneurs should keep in mind as they go through the legal process with government? So I think the other thing to, to keep in mind is that the government plays by a very specific set of rules. And if you're going to work with the government, it's a really good idea for you to figure out what the ground rules actually are. So yes, the federal acquisition regulation is extremely long. It's over a thousand pages. It's extremely detailed and it will go into every aspect of how a contracting officer will do their job. It's a, it's a guidebook for the contracting officer, but then again, it's also a guidebook for all of the government contractors who work with them, because then you know exactly what they should be doing and you'll be able to spot when they do something wrong, because usually that's the piece that government contractors don't realize you can bring that to their attention and they will try to do it the right way. They're, they're really just, it's, it's more like, neglect rather than active, uh, what is it called? It's neglect, not willful action. Yeah. It's not, it's not like the lawyers on the government side are trying to negotiate a lower price or anything like that. They're just trying Correct. to make sure it's under the right contract vehicle. I know that's kind of a legal term, but right. <laughs> you know, the right, right structure. Okay. And and the truth is, it's it's not usually down to price. Most of the contracts nowadays, um, there was a time where they were lowest price technically acceptable. So as long as your product, you know, had wheels and could roll, if you were the lowest price, they would give it to you. They're moving, the pendulum is moving more back towards best value, where they look at both price and technical. And if you have a technically superior product and you can demonstrate that your product is superior technically, they're willing to pay that price premium. What would you say is the difference in like the legal review process at the different levels of government? So, you know, at the small town, township, city, small city, you know, 
big state government deal or at the federal level? Like how, how is the legal process different or is it different in any of those three situations? So I think federal across the board is more consistent. So there's the federal acquisition regulation. There's a process. All the contracting officers go through the same school. So you you deal with the DOD. They have very similar processes to the FDA, which has very similar processes to the DOJ or interior or transportation. So across all of the government agencies on the federal level, they're all the same. They're going to follow the same process, follow the same procedure. When you start getting at state and local levels, every single state is going to have a different set of laws. It's one of those situations where it's 80% the same, but the 20% difference is going to be the biggest headache you will ever have because you will have to figure out how does this state differ and how they procure, and it's not going to be easily translatable from one state to the next. So the same thing from state to state. Some counties even have specific laws that dictate certain things. And and the area that I'm thinking about is in terms of lobbying. So there are actually, in California in particular, there's a state lobbying uh, law. And then some of the counties themselves have lobbying uh, regulations. And then within the county, some of the cities have specific lobbying restrictions. So to get as granular as knowing that you're going to San Jose to talk to someone, that trips up not only the San Jose city law, but it trips up the county law and also trips up the state law. And a lot of times you don't know when you're going that, you know, when I go talk to an official in this area where I'm going to be subject to both cities, county and state law, and how do all of those things interplay with each other? It's hard to figure out a lot of times. Let's take a step back and think about the entrepreneur that's just getting started, uh, you know, small business owner. What kind of things should they have figured out before they even engage? Depending on where you are in your life cycle as a company, right? So are you a startup that is looking for funding and you don't necessarily have a sellable product at the time? you're going to have a different series of funding opportunities than someone that's a little bit more mature where they have a product and they're looking to sell. So from that perspective, if the smaller you are, the more R&D funding you'll be getting or seeking. And this is where we call it non-dilutive funding because the government will give you research grants and we can help you or companies with the right IP counsel will be able to protect their IP so that they can receive that non-dilutive funding and move them to the next bucket, which is the bucket of a company still small that has a product and is now starting to sell to the government. Um, What that company needs is standard terms and conditions especially if you're a SaaS company that's selling online cloud services, um, terms of service that are government-friendly and understanding what it means to be government-friendly. Yeah, let's talk about that. (laughs) What does government-friendly mean? You you don't just take your standard terms and conditions and send it off to the government and because the government's going to then come back with a number of red lines to that and they're not going to accept certain things. There are certain types of... Um, 
clauses that the government on state and federal level will never be able to accept. One of them is uh, automatic renewals for subscription services. And the main reason here is just because the government is funded on a yearly basis. They only receive appropriations for the fiscal year. They cannot sign up for anything that goes beyond one year. And how do, you, how do companies get around that? So what the government will do is they'll issue a one-year base, base year, and then they'll issue attached to that same contract four one-year options. And the idea is a, a lot of times companies will get tripped up on the fact of, oh, is that a five-year contract? It's not really a five-year contract, even though it looks like it, because the total value is, is valued at five years. But the way that the government sees it as it's a one year, and if they get appropriated the next year, they can exercise that option. And if they get appropriated, they can exercise that the, the next option for the third year. And the difficulty for small businesses is how do you recognize that revenue and how do you account for it on your books? And our advice is always you recognize after you receive the funds, right? So if you do it on a, it's a one-year contract, you can only recognize the revenue for that first year. You have to wait for them to exercise the second option for the second year and so on and so forth. Um, so, so that's one of the types of things where the government is automatically going to strike through. If you have an automatic renewal in your contract, they're going to say we can't do that because of appropriations law. They will also strike any kind of choice of law. Oh, it's going to go there. The that was my level. next. <laughs> all every time. They will strike every it. time it comes back. They will strike it every single time. And this is on the federal level. They will say um, federal law applies. They don't really care about venue, but they do care about choice of law in terms of it has to be federal law for state and local Venue and choice of law is probably going to be the state that you're negotiating in. California is not going to accept New York law. New York law is not going to accept Virginia law. And Virginia is not going to accept, you know, Florida law. And so just knowing that going in, that you are going to have to accept local law and local venue, that will help solve lots of problems. And the way that you do it is you have your standard choice of law clause, and then you say in there, if it is a state that is the other party, then we use your state choice of law and venue. And that will usually make all of the states feel better and, and, and not fight over that provision. I, I love that tip, Joyce. It's a small little change to your contract but I mean, the, the fewer amount of times you have to go back and forth with them to get this thing signed and move forward, uh, the better. And that that one little change, I bet, would save so much back and forth. Right. And, and I think part of it is knowing what you absolutely have to take and knowing what is actually negotiable. So it doesn't make sense to fight over annual renewals or automatic renewals if you know that the government can't do that. So you might as well just take it out. You know what the reasoning is and just take it out. You address the choice of law because you know they're already going to want their their own choice of law. Um, in terms of limitations of liability and indemnity, indemnity, they the government will never indemnify their 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 customers. So just just know 
that that's not going to happen and turn those indemnities into representations, right? So like if you want them to indemnify you for certain things, you can also then take it out and turn it into a rep and warrant and say, instead of indemnifying for us, uh, us on these things, then you, the government agrees that they will not do X, right? And that becomes a better um, negotiation position for the government to accept. Oh, that's, that's good stuff. I mean, another one that comes back all the time, you know, just learned the hard way, right, is uh, confidentiality. Like they're not going to sign. Right. Uh, I mean, maybe, maybe you know better, but in my experience, they're not going to sign any confidentiality. They've got public disclosure laws, right? Correct. And so that, that the interesting thing about it is on the federal level, they won't sign NDAs mainly because there's the Trade Secrets Act, which holds each individual government employee liable for disclosing the trade secrets of anyone. And so what that means is it's actually a harsher penalty than you would get from an NDA, right? The NDA basically says don't disclose. But if they violate the Trade Secrets Act, they go to jail. Um, So there is already that inherent fear of disclosure built into all government employees, you don't really need to say to them, don't disclose. What you do need to tell them is what not to disclose, right? So don't just assume that everything you give them is under confidentiality requirements. You have to actually put that on there, that it's confidential or proprietary and not subject to any open records or for requests. And that's, that goes the same with state and local state and local, you might be able to get some of the states to sign an NDA. Um, it might be, it might just take too long. You better have a really good product. <laughs> or or you, you might just have to really, really want to wear them down, yeah. right? Like you have a very long negotiation period and you don't mind spending the amount of time and money to negotiate it. Most of the time, state officials or states have laws that talk about trade secrets and misappropriation as well. So you just need to make sure that your state has that in place. And then you have to mark your information and basically say, this is confidential proprietary. It will cause us severe economic distress and uh, consequences on our competition if our IP or this particular piece is disclosed. And that is a... um, that is a flag for the government employee to know that this is not subject to open records laws that they want to that you want to claim IP protection over any information that you provide them. Wow, this is uh, it's like there there's a way through this path, but you gotta you gotta be able to read the, the read the map, yeah, or thread the needle exactly. Well, uh, just a few last questions for you, Joyce. What is any other tips? or recommendations, mistakes you see entrepreneurs make? Any any other advice you can give to new entrepreneurs starting out? I think the biggest mistake is to just think that the government is like any other customer and that as long as you sign you know, the contract with them that you don't need to worry about it. I think the biggest issue is government funds come with strings. And you need to know what those strings are, because if you don't, you're going to sign up for a lot of um, compliance requirements that you didn't know you signed up for. And if it ever comes out, if a whistleblower decides that they want to challenge you on that, uh, they can they there's a substantial you know finder's fee 
for bringing these types of cases in. So when you are thinking about taking government money, be thoughtful about it. Um, I'm not saying don't do it because the government is when, you know, the stock market is doing well, the government is also flush with cash because they have a lot of, you know, tax revenue. When the stock market is tanked and the economy is horrible, the government is spending money to try to prop up the economy. So in a downturn and an upturn, the government's going to be buying. And if you aren't selling to them, you really should think about it. But at the same time, understand what you're getting into and understand what the penalties are so that you can do it correctly talk to the right people in terms of attorneys or compliance folks. Don't just hire some, you know, salesperson who says they can get you all these contracts and, you know, sign you up for all these things that you don't know what you don't know. Or, or, or I mean, just to piggyback on that, or just a regular lawyer, it's, it's totally right. different in the government space. And those, those skills don't transfer automatically. Correct. Well, Joyce, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Matt, for having me. And it was a pleasure. Man, what a great conversation with Joyce. Uh, and those tidbits about the contract. I mean, yeah, boy, it took me years to learn some of that stuff. And I still learned a, a few things from what she said. So that was awesome. A, a couple of takeaways for me and my business. Uh, one, I never really thought about it because I always try to operate in an ethical, uh, honest manner. But, uh, you know, I know there's a lot in the private sector that are, all about cutting corners and those kinds of things. Uh, this isn't the place for that. And I, I never put two and two together with the, the consequences of selling to the government if you, uh, uh, if you screw them over. But um, that was a good, a good reminder that uh, you know, this, this isn't a place for uh, unethical activities uh, because if you get caught, there's huge consequences. Uh, protecting your IP, I thought that was another good one. I mean, that happens... So many times when we've just gotten the default contract and the default contracts, you know, essentially gives all of your IP to them uh, and, and making sure you catch that. And, and, you know, on, on to her point too, about it wasn't necessarily nefarious on their part. Uh, that's kind of how I sometimes took it in my younger years uh, when I was first getting started in this business. But uh, now, you know, it's a good reminder to understand that there's usually not a nefarious intent here, but uh, you know, maybe they're just not understanding. They're in a hurry. They're busy, and they, you know, they're just trying to check this off their list of to-do things too. So, um, yeah. So I thought that was good. Oh, and and never and the other takeaway for me is never get into lobbying. Uh, that sounds way too complex. Hey, and that wraps us up for today. I hope that you learned something from this episode and and that you enjoyed listening to it. If you would, please go to the website civicthinker.com and enter your email address. That way you can be in the loop if we push out more content or maybe someday do a future event. Oh, and we'd love to hear your suggestions on topics as well. So drop us a line at podcast.civicthinker.com and let us know if there's any questions or areas you'd like us to explore further.